Chapter 4 Are Profits Wrong? Last year, the Ford Industries paid directly in wages about $250 million. Purchases were probably responsible for the payment of about $500 million more in wages. Service stations and dealers paid about $250 million in wages. So the company last year generated about $1,000 million in wage money. Beginning with the first car, it took us approximately 20 years to build a million cars. The millionth was turned out on December 10, 1915. On May 28, 1921, we turned out our five millionth car. On June 4, 1924, we turned out our ten millionth car. Since then, our factories have reached a capacity in excess of two million cars a year. In 1922, we bought three times as much as we made ourselves. Now it is only twice as much. We have raised the minimum wage from $5 a day to $6 a day. But our cars are being sold at 40% less than they were in 1914, when our average wage was $2.40 a day. The cars have steadily decreased in price, while almost all other commodities have increased in price. The touring car may be bought at about 20 cents a pound, a highly refined piece of machinery built with the greatest care and of the best materials cost less per pound than beefsteak. The profits of the Ford Industries, other than a comparatively negligible amount, have gone back into the industries. The public built our industries through buying our product. The public subscribed, not through stocks or bonds, but by purchasing the commodities which we manufacture and offer for sale. We have always sold to the public at a price higher than the cost of manufacturing, although often we have reduced prices to a point where no profit was visible, and thus forced ourselves to find ways and means of reducing costs in order to earn a profit. But each year has seen a profit. Nearly all of that profit has each year gone back into the business to provide facilities for still further lowering costs and raising wages. These profits put back into the business have not been invested in buildings, land, and machinery. We do not regard the public's money returned to the business as an investment on which interest should be charged. That money is the public's money, and the public, having confidence enough in our product to pay the money to us, is entitled to its own money. There are, however, profits and profits. Profits may be stupidly fixed and stupidly used. If so, they destroy their source and vanish. A business which charges too high a profit disappears about as quickly as one that operates at a loss. However useful the commodity one may make, if it is produced and sold at a loss, its production ceases. There is nothing in quality of goods or quality of service that can overcome the economic error of selling at a loss. Profit is essential to business vitality. In proportion, as a business increases, the cost of production decreases. A slack shop is costlier to maintain than a busy shop. The duty of every manager of industry is to encourage business by making it easy for people to obtain what they need at a price they can afford. A new revival of confidence and energy in the nation should be met halfway by a decrease in prices, a decrease that is in line with the decrease in cost. To hold up prices is to tax the people more heavily than even a government could. 
good management pays dividends in good wages, lower prices, and more business. It is very bad management that can see in a revival of national ambition only an opportunity to lay heavier burdens on the spirit of enterprise. This ought to be self-evident. No one who gets rich quickly stays rich. Going into business just to get rich is a waste of effort. We do have a type of business whose only objective is the swelling of someone's personal fortune. A business which exists to make one man or one family rich, and whose existence is of no moment when this is achieved, is not solidly founded. Indeed, cupidity, greed of money, will usually force such decreases in the quality of goods, such curtailments of service, and such arbitrary charges to the public that the business will fade long before it has contributed to anybody's fortune. One organization must have profit to pay the demand of those persons who have invested in the business but who have no hand in its operation. They are absentee dividend-takers. What goes to them does not strengthen the business but is taken out of the business and may go to swell the sum of idleness outside. There is much justifiable idleness, of course. Looking over our country, we see millions of children in school. Their leisure and education are made possible by the fact that men are at work, likewise with the aged and infirm. But there is unjustifiable idleness, and that too is supported by men at work. A business should pay everybody connected with it, and for every element used in it. It should pay for managerial brains, productive ability, contributive labor, but it should also pay the public whose patronage supports it. A business that does not make a profit for the buyer of a commodity as well as for the seller is not a good business. If a man is not better off for buying than he would be if he had kept his money in his pocket, there is something wrong. Buyer and seller must both be wealthier in some way as a result of a transaction, else the balance is broken. Pile up these breaks long enough and you upset the world. We have yet to learn the antisocial nature of every business transaction that is not just and profitable all around. The business itself, the organized entity that engages in production or service, needs a profit or a surplus to keep its vitality a little in advance of the drain upon it. This surplus is to prevent depletion under extraordinary strain, also to permit of expansion. Growth is necessary to life and growth requires a surplus. This statement is made of the business, not of the owner or director of the business. He is paid, like any other worker, out of the costs of the business. The profit belongs to the business, to safeguard the business in its task of giving service, and to permit natural growth. The main consideration is the business, this entity that gives employment to producers and gives useful commodities or needed service to the public. The principle of service requires that profits be measured only by legitimate replacement and necessary expansion. Those are the limits. Flexible limits, but still limits. Sometimes one hears a complaint against expansion, as though it were potentially dangerous. If expansion is undertaken in the interest of service, quite the opposite is the case, as has been shown in a previous chapter. One need fear only the business which is not growing, for it is not rendering service. Now, take our own company. How have we used our profits? What have we done with the public's money? What has been our stewardship? Since 1921-22, when my life and work was written, 
we have more than doubled our productive capacity for cars and tractors. We are making hardly a single part in the same way, or of precisely the same material as we made it then. We have, step by step, gone back to primary sources. We are in the motor business and in no other business. Everything that we do gets back to the motor. With the Ford Motor Company of Canada, there are now a total of 88 plants, of which six are in the United States and 28 in foreign countries. No one plant anywhere makes a complete automobile. Of the plants in the United States, 24 are exclusively manufacturing plants, and 36 are assembling or partly manufacturing and partly assembling. Our chief manufacturing plants abroad are at Cork, Ireland, and Manchester, England. We have assembly plants, some of which do, or will do, a little manufacturing, at Antwerp, Barcelona, Bordeaux, Buenos Aires, Copenhagen, Montevideo, Pernambuco, Rotterdam, Santiago, Chile, Sao Paulo, Stockholm, Trieste, Berlin, Mexico City, Yokohama, and Havana. The Ford Motor Company of Canada has plants or branches at Ford, Ontario, Calgary, Montreal, Regina, St. John's, Toronto, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Port Elizabeth, South Africa, Geelong, Australia. The affiliated companies are Ford Motor Company, Australia, Proprietary Limited, Manufacturing and Sales Branches, Geelong, Brisbane, Adelaide, Sydney, and Perth, Australia, and Hobart, Tasmania. Ford Manufacturing Company, Proprietary Limited, Body Plant at Geelong, Australia, and Ford Motor Company, South African Limited, Port Elizabeth. Our plants in the United States are at Banner Fork, Dearborn, Duluth, Flat Rock, Glasmere, Green Island, Hamilton, Highland Park, Holden, Clayton Iron Mountain, Lance, Lincoln, Northville, Nuttleburg, Pequaming, Phoenix, Plymouth, Rouge, Stone, Twin Branch, Kearney, Waterford, Ypsilanti, and Chester. The branches are at Atlanta, Buffalo, Cambridge, Charlotte, Chicago, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus, Dallas, Denver, Des Moines, Detroit, Fargo, Houston, Indianapolis, Jacksonville, Kansas City, Los Angeles, Louisville, Memphis, Milwaukee, Twin City, New Orleans, New York, Norfolk, Kearney, Oklahoma City, Omaha, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Portland, Oregon, St. Louis, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. We are in the following lines of business, every one of which grows out of the making of motors. Airplanes, coal mining, coke manufacturer, byproducts manufacturer, lead mining, iron mining, foundry, steel manufacturer, tool making, machinery manufacturer, car, truck, and tractor manufacturer, glass manufacturer, artificial leather, copper wire, fordite, textiles, batteries and generators, paper, cement, automobile bodies, Johansson gauges, electric power, filtered water, flour, motion pictures, hospital farming and stock raising, radio, printing, photography, forging, flax growing, steam turbine, electric locomotives, logging, sawmills, body parts, dry kilns, wood distillation, products of hydroelectric power, grocery stores, 
shoe stores, clothing stores, butcher shop, railroads, educational, ocean transportation, lake transportation, tractors, and automobiles. This rather extensive program, which has to do both with production and distribution, has been carried through because the public has found our products useful, and no step has been taken excepting in the interests of the public and the wage earners. We have built nothing for the sake of building. We have bought nothing for the sake of buying. We make nothing for the sake of making. Our operations all center about the manufacture of motors. If those who sell to us will not manufacture at the prices which, upon investigation, we believe to be right, then we make the article ourselves. In many cases, we have gone back to the primary sources, and in other cases, we manufacture just enough of a product to get thoroughly familiar with it, so that in an emergency we may make it ourselves. Sometimes, also, we do this merely to test the price we are paying. In distribution, the same rule holds. We have lake ships, ocean-going ships, and a railroad in order that we may measure transportation charges. All this is in the benefit of the public, for accepting the railroad, which is a separate corporation, each new branch of industry merges into the industry, and the savings which ensue are for the eventual benefit of the public. For instance, we have made rubber tires, although we have no present intention of going into the tire business. The price of rubber may be forced inordinately high. In any event, we have to be prepared. It would never do to have to shut down our operation for lack of tires. We buy on cost and not on market price, and we believe we render a service in so doing. If we felt otherwise, we should not follow the practice. In our own production, we set ourselves tasks. Sometimes we arbitrarily fix prices, and then invariably we are able to make them. Whereas if we merely accepted things as they are, we should never get anywhere. We follow exactly the same practice with those from whom we buy, and invariably they prosper. Take a specific case. Before this policy was fully developed, a manufacturer was making a certain style of automobile body for us at a certain price each. He was not manufacturing in a large way, and his profits were insignificant. We calculated that those bodies ought to be made at exactly half the price, and that is the price we asked him to get down to. This was the first time that real pressure for a lower price had ever been put upon him, and of course he thought he could not do any better than he had been doing. His profit showed him that he could not. It is one of the oddities of business that a man will cite what he has done in the past as a proof of what he can do in the future. The past is only something to learn from. Well, this man finally consented to try to manufacture at exactly one-half his former price. Then, for the first time in his life, he began to learn how to do business. He had to raise wages, for he had to have first-class men. Under the pressure of necessity, he found he could make cost reductions here and there and everywhere, and the upshot of it was that he made more money out of the low price than he had ever made out of the high price, and his workmen have received a higher wage. One frequently hears that wages have to be cut because of competition, but competition is never really met by lowering wages. Cutting wages does not reduce costs, it increases them. The only way to get a low-cost product is to pay a high price for a high grade of human service and see to it, through management, that you get that service. We have had many experiences such as that with the body maker. 
and we believe that our policy is in line of public service. The most important basic developments have been in the use of more and more power, both from coal and from water. Until now, with the completion of the Fordson Power Station, we shall have a unit producing half a million horsepower, of which more in a later chapter. This is the plant on the River Rouge, and which we formally designated by the name of the river. All our operations get back to the provision of power. The other developments of moment have been the coal and iron mines, and the lumber camps, the extension of the Fordson plant as a converter of raw materials and waste, the building of a laboratory at Dearborn, the taking over of the Lincoln Motor Car Company, the extension of lake, ocean, land, and air transport, the building of new plants throughout the country and the world, and the going into the manufacture of glass, cement, flax, artificial leather, and a number of chemical compounds. But the necessity for all of these extensions into other lines is shown by the fact that, of our byproducts, only two are sold outside of the company. All the others fit in somewhere into manufacture. For instance, we make cement from slag, but we have not been able to produce enough cement for even our own building needs. The two products, which we have in part to sell outside, are ammonium sulfate, which is sold easily in the amount that we produce for fertilizer, and benzol. We can use a deal of the benzol in the company motor car transport, but not all, and hence we have to sell some of it on the outside as a motor fuel. The demand for this benzol is so much greater than our supply that the sales problem amounts to nothing at all. Eighty-eight stations now sell our benzol, and it is used quite extensively in airplanes. We do sell coal as a return cargo on our Great Lakes ships through part of the year, but this is just an aside to lessen the cost of transport. Some of our extensions have been emergency measures. For instance, the making of glass. The automobile changed very quickly from an open summer vehicle to a closed year-round means of transportation, but few know what a strain this put upon the glass-making facilities of the country. We use about one-quarter of all the plate glass produced in the United States. But glass was getting scarce, and so we went out and bought the plant and equipment of the Allegheny Glass Company at Glassmere, near Pittsburgh, which had a reputation for turning out first-class plate. At the time of our purchase, three years ago, it was making six million square feet of glass a year, and 30% of its output was not fit for motor car use. Now, with only a small amount of additional machinery and using most of the old machinery and the old staff of men, we are getting around 8 million feet a year, and less than 10% is unfit for our use. The principal change we made was to put in the $6 a day minimum wage. In this plant, in order to avoid any interruption of production, we have kept the old way of making plate glass as against the new way, which was finally achieved in the plant at the River Rouge. If you compare those methods with the new methods described in the next chapter, you will gain some idea of the economies which may be had in almost any line of manufacturing, if only the will to get away from tradition be strong enough. The batch, or mixture, is melted in clay pots, each of which will pour 300 square feet of rough plate, one-half inch thick. A furnace holds 16 of these pots. When the glass is ready to pour, the pot is removed from the furnace by a crane and carried to the casting table, where its contents are poured and rolled to the desired thickness. The plate is then annealed, coming out at a temperature cool enough to handle. 
The next step is grinding and polishing. This is done on circular decks on which sheets of glass are set in plaster until the surface is completely covered with glass. The deck is then taken to the grinding machine. Seven different abrasives, ranging from coarse sand to fine emery, are used. After the grinding is done, the deck is washed free from abrasives and sent to the polishing table, where a high gloss is put on by large revolving felt blocks. Liquid rouge is fed to the table at the center, and the felt blocks spread it evenly. The plate is then reversed and sent back to the grinders, where the same process is gone through with again. It is all very slow and very wasteful. The manufacture of the clay pots in which the glass is melted is the only archaic process to be found in the Ford Industries. It is all done by hand and by foot. The clay is first kneaded by the bare feet of the workmen until its consistency is uniform and all grit or foreign substances have been worked out. The pots are then built up by hand, layer by layer, until all the air holes have been closed. Even a slight defect might cause the pot to crack in the furnace. No machinery has yet been devised which will make glass pots equal to those made by hand. In our new system, we have done none of this handwork. We have no pots. In order to make the glassmere plant complete, we had also to buy a silica quarry at Cabot, 18 miles away. There, with 40 men, we quarry, crush, and ship from 8 to 10 carloads of silica sand a day. We use the same men who worked off and on in the quarry before, but they are different men under a six-dollar-a-day wage and steady work. They are nearly all unskilled laborers, for we have arranged that nearly no skill need be used in any job. But they are not shiftless. They stay on the job, they work, they invest, and a number of them have moved out of the old shacks they used to live in and are building real homes. And the man-effectiveness under the new methods is, we have been told, about double what it was under the old methods. Our costs of production are very low indeed, for nearly all the work is done by machinery. The holes are sunk by a battery of rock drills. Holes are charged with dynamite, which blasts off large quantities of sand rock. The rock is scooped up, put into small steel cars by steam shovels, and hauled by tractors fitted with steel wheels to the crushing plant. There the stone is crushed, sifted, and washed the requisite number of times to get the purity required for glassmaking and finally flows through pipes by gravity into the cars which take it to the glassmere plant. And one more thing. This quarry is clean, and the crushing plant is clean. That is another of our absolute rules. Every operation must be cleanly performed. And if some of the machines tend to create dust, as crushers do, then they must be made tight, an apparatus provided for taking away dust. It is not right to expose men to dust, nor is it right to put a layer of dust over the surrounding country and spoil its trees and plants. In order to have an independent supply of iron ore, and to save transportation, we bought the Imperial Mine at Michigami, 80 miles north of Iron Mountain, which is the center of our lumbering interests. The mine had not been producing for ten years, but we considered it a good mine and righted the line of our transport, so that there would be no waste in useless handling. This was our first venture in iron mining, but we followed our usual practice in putting at the head of the job a man who had thoroughly learned our methods and policies. The first job was to clean up. That is always the first thing to do, in order to find out what you are about. 
The place, having been abandoned for so long, was dirty and overgrown. There is a tradition that all kinds of mining have to be dirty. We cannot afford to have dirt around. It is too expensive. Then we began to work into mining, learning as we went. The primary conditions were that the miners should have good wages, work and live under safe and comfortable conditions, and that we should have an ample supply of low-cost ore. This we have achieved. This camp looks like a suburban colony. Everything is painted and kept painted a light color so that the least bit of dirt will show. We do not paint to cover up dirt. We paint white or light gray in order that cleanliness may be the order of things and not the exception. The housing was bad, and although we did not like to go into the housing business, in this case we had to, and we have also had to do the same in our coal mines and lumbering camps. We put up a dormitory for single men with a separate room for each man, and then we brought in portable houses for the married men, which have since been replaced by cottages. We rent them at $12 a month, with electric lighting included. The whole mine and the camp are fully lighted by electricity. The only school was in a barn. We have built a good school, and also a first-class store, to which everything is sold at cost. Of course, we put in our regular wage. That brought to us the best class of miners from all about. And although we cannot employ more than 225 men at any one time, we have on file applications for several times that number of jobs. The men work eight hours without overtime, and the labor turnover is negligible. We are able to give practically steady work, and the men do work. We do not pretend to know much about iron mining as yet. We have not been at it long enough to learn what can be done. But it seems to be a field in which machinery can be used in a much larger degree than it is generally used. We have gone slowly, for one thing, because we wanted to make the mining as nearly safe for the miners as is possible. Mining, working underground, is nasty work at the best. And the first effort has been to make everything safe. And it is safe. Our list of accidents has been very small indeed. Every part of the mine and the camp is kept in absolute order. The mining is on three levels, about 200 feet apart. The blasting of the ore is done at the end of each of the two eight-hour shifts to avoid danger to workers. The ore is then transferred by an electrified railway system. Ore at the different levels is dumped from the cars by compressed air into chutes, which leads to a central pit at the bottom of the mine where larry cars, drawn by cables, pull it up the incline to the surface. A skip-hoist equipment takes care of ore mined at a deeper level. The chief mine inspector tests walls and ceilings of all passages at frequent intervals. A wide-awake safety committee was organized, and the cooperation of the entire camp has been secured in working constantly for safe conditions. In handling explosives, rigid precautions are observed. The safety lamps worn on miners' caps must be removed 25 feet from the explosives room, which is electrically lighted. In the mine passages, an extensive pumping system clears the low points of seepage, while a steam heating system aids in drying and warming passages. The miners wear specially protected clothes and rubber boots. After work, each man takes a bath in the company shower rooms and makes a complete change of clothing. Clothing worn in the mines is heated and dried during the time off-duty. Mining operations are carried on the year-round, 
the ore being transferred by rail to Marquette for shipment to the Fordson plant on the company's lake freighters. During the winter, when navigation is closed, it is stored near the shaft entrance, the handling being by special machinery. Not a mule or horse is owned by the company. The production of ore is now around 200,000 tons a year, and our costs are low, lower than those of any mine paying lower wages. In addition to this mine, we have taken over other ore properties in the range. Such is the process. It will be developed in the following chapters of putting the public's money at work. That money came to us as profits. Are profits wrong? <laughs>